Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I am very, very excited with the entrepreneur that we are going to have on the show today. Uh, it's someone that has built several businesses from the ground up, someone that is coming from a family of entrepreneurs. So he's seen it, he's done it, and I think that we're going to be learning a lot uh, from him, especially uh, when it comes to uh, the software-defined networking and and voice over IP and, and all the good stuff that, that we've seen uh, from technologies uh, during the past uh, years and also through what we have in the future ahead. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest uh, today, and his name is Andy Ori from 128 Technology. Welcome to the show today. Well, Alejandro, thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here. So originally from Massachusetts, is that right, Andy? I, yeah, I was born in Worcester and I um, live just outside of Boston. So I haven't made it very far, about 40 miles in 53 years, but I, I have to say I love the region. I love New England. So how was life growing up there? You know, it was great. It really, it really was great. I grew up, I went to the public schools in Worcester and I managed to go to the, the colleges in Boston and uh, Massachusetts has done right by me. And I try very hard to do all of my engineering, all of my support, all of my manufacturing in this great state. Very cool. Very cool. And I understand as well that you were born in a family of entrepreneurs and you were really able to see the kitchen table type of entrepreneurs. So, so how was how was this for you? You know, I got to see my father come home, at, you know, from from work every day and he would talk about, you know, the, the things they were making, people buying their their materials and, you know, the trials and tribulations and the ups and downs of of their little community. And it was really wonderful. I, I just discovered that having a business is about creating community and culture. It's, it's, it's a bunch of people banding together to do something. And there's a lot of pride associated with it. And I found, I found that to be something quite attractive and enticing. And I guess this started with your grandmother uh, doing a coat manufacturing business. So what a, what a powerhouse. Yeah, well, I mean, my guess is if we go back 100 or 200 years, just about everybody was involved in some level of entrepreneurship, um, trying to take limited resources to create a living. Uh, it's just I was exposed to it in a more direct fashion, and it had an indelible impression on me. So just out of curiosity, what are your thoughts on entrepreneurs being born or developed? 
You know, that's really interesting. I, I, I think that if you, if you really aren't interested at all in entrepreneurship, it's uh, going to be a hard road to hoe. Um, but if you do have an interest, it is definitely something that can be cultivated. I think that most entrepreneurship is something that you, you mentor, you, um, you know, you intern, you experience and you just engage in. So I, I do think that it's probably similar to music. Everybody has the capacity to be musical, but if you're not interested, you're not going to be very good at it. Got it. So I guess from, from seeing your family, uh, you know, building and, and scaling their, their business, was there like a point in time where you told yourself, I'm going to do this oneself my day? One, one day I'll do this myself one day. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't think there was ever an epiphany. I, I think that it was just something that I always wanted to do. I was always interested in how things are made, how things are sold, how resources were accumulated. And I am a people person. And so the cultural aspect of aligning and motivating and, you know, uh, just just reaching your goal was something I always wanted to do. So, no, there was no single moment. It's just what I always wanted to do. Got it. And I guess the project started in high school. So uh, tell us about these projects. And, and Yeah, you know, I, I, I will say with people that write code, it, you know, it's probably, I always felt that the best coders were probably born, um, though you, you, you certainly can learn it if you're interested. And um, I, I remember I used to go to WPI back in ninth grade at Worcester Polytech, and I would take classes in um, assembly language and in their programs, and I just had a knack for it. And so I started writing code, and I discovered that people were having a lot of personal computers in the late 70s and early 80s, and there weren't a lot of uh, programs people could buy. And so I started writing programs and selling them uh, through the back pages of the Wall Street Journal and the uh, USA Today and the New York Times. Uh, it was called Consumer Software Systems. It was my first business. Um, didn't really make much money, but it was, it was really interesting. You know, I'd get the orders every so often, and I'd have to copy the disks and fulfill them, and it was, it was fun. It was really, really, you, you take me back with that question. I haven't <laughs> thought about consumer software systems in 40 years. <laughs> Really cool, really cool. And and why why I mean here you are <clears throat> writing code and, and 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 doing your projects. Why did you decide to go to Harvard College and and do the film major? You know, I I, I think that there was very little about me that was wise back then, um, and it's probably the same can be said now. But certainly back then. But I did have one salient observation, and that is that. There is a time to pull back from something that you're obsessed with to survey a broader landscape to understand what's going on. And that's really a liberal arts education, studying history, studying all sorts of philosophy. And I didn't want to just be singularly focused my entire life without a larger cultural or historical context. And so I did want to go to a liberal arts school and not be involved in technology directly for a few years. And for me, that served me well. I can't say that's the right path for all your listeners, but it was the right path for me. Got it. And, and, I, and I understand, you know, obviously film major. So storytelling, you know, was something that 
that you were able to really get exposure uh, to. And, and, and I'm asking here, like, what, how would you say that storytelling has perhaps a play a part in, in your career as a, as an entrepreneur? You know, it's companies are willed into existence. It's not a rational, reasonable thing. I remember when I wanted to start uh, one of my businesses, a family friend, a dear friend of mine, who's also an attorney said, you know, I have to tell you, I don't believe that this is something that, you know, is going to be a great business because if it were something the world needed, it would already exist. And I mean, think about that logic. And the, the flip side of that logic is if it doesn't exist, why now and why you? And the reason of why now and why you is because of your belief. Ideas are cheap. They're all over the place. They're a dime a dozen. But the life energy that an entrepreneur can breathe into that idea and inflate that sale and make it go, that's the precious, critical, scarce commodity. And that life energy needs to coalesce around an idea that attracts and motivates and aligns resources, aligns people and product and capital and customers. And that all has to happen in advance of there actually being an enterprise, in advance of there being a solution. And that means you need to tell a story. And that story has to be compelling. Got it. So just out of curiosity, like based on on and we'll get into into it a little bit deeper later but for example when it comes to just out of curiosity like fundraising right so when you have like like your pitch what would you say are like the three essence of like the good storytelling in a in a pitch well I, oh, wow um i remember that what made a great salesperson I, I, I this was a long time ago someone told me about ibm and training it was about being knowledgeable about being excited about being friendly. Um, I mean, I think, I think what makes a great pitch is there needs to be authenticity. Um, there needs to be something that's compelling. It needs to be insightful. Um, I find that when I look at it and I do invest in other businesses, I want to learn something when someone comes in and talks. I want to learn. I want to learn about them. I want to learn about the market. I want to learn about me as a potential customer. And um, it's not it's not about arbitrage. It, it's also not about something that um, is a nice to have. It's something that needs to be a must have. So, I mean, these are things it, it, you ask such a broad question and I'm, I'm probably not the, the best one to answer what makes the most compelling pitch. I just know that I've been able to deliver very compelling pitches. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I genuinely believe in what we're what we're trying to accomplish, and I'm excited, and I'm committed, and I'm able to educate people about something they didn't know before we talked. I love it. And I find that what you're pointing to of authenticity, I think that that's the, um, the, the critical factor behind this. So let's, let's go back here to, to Harvard College. So you graduate from Harvard College. What happens immediately after in 88? <laughs> well, <laughs> At, right after college, everyone else, uh, well, not everyone, a lot of people met with recruiters on campus and, and took jobs. I didn't want to do that. I, a couple of my roommates and I bought a VW microbus camper, and we went and traveled around the country going to uh, three or four different elements. We saw a lot of Grateful Dead shows. We saw a lot of architectural monuments. We went to a lot of breweries and a lot of uh, amusement parks. We did that for about eight weeks, which was about the right amount of time. That was really fun. 
And then I came back to Cambridge and I said, now I need to get a job. And um, I, I will say that I had a structural advantage. I mean, I had many, but one in particular is I was able to walk into my uh, career services at, at Harvard and that people post a whole bunch of jobs. And Massachusetts is a very vibrant technology community. So there's, a, there's lots of different jobs. And I found one where they needed a combination of people that understood technology and programming, and but also understood editing. Because I understood film and film editing, and I was a computer science guy, I was able to do both. And I was hired as a user interface specialist at a company called Boston Technology. So I designed, recorded, and programmed all of the prompt trees, the decision points in residential voicemail for a business where I was a 28th employee. And um, a year and a half later, there were 150 people and the business was offering um, large scale voice messaging for uh, the telephone companies to give to residents, to sell to residents. Got it. And I believe that the, that the stay uh, within this business was a, was a short one. It was just like about two years. So, so Yeah, it was about, I, about, a year, about a year and a half. The business changed dramatically. It, it outgrew me. Um, you know, I just had a college degree and I was, uh, I was like a radar O'Reilly for the people that remember MASH. I basically did a little bit of everything and knew everything that was going on. But as the business got so large, it was pretty clear that I was going to have a much narrower job. And that wasn't something I was interested in. And I thought very naively, of course, well, I, I ought to be able to start a business. These people were able to do it. Um, you know, I think the lesson in there, of course, is that you want to expose children to all sorts of opportunities, because if they see others do it, they believe that they can do it. Um, and I, that was something that I benefited from. I saw these young folks. They were 30 years old at the time, start a business. And I thought, well, I'm 22. I ought to be able to do it. And so I started a business in March of 91. Uh, and it was it eventually became a single number type business where uh, prepaid calling, callback, uh, cellular, uh, voicemail, stuff like that all tied together behind a single number. Got it. And, uh, yeah. And, and, did. and before we talk about priority call management, which is the, the name of, of, of this business, your first uh, real business, you actually on, uh, Boston technology, you were introduced to networking technologies. What, what got you so like, like, wow, what is this? Yeah, you know, networking wasn't so significant back then. It was more there was a front-end programmable digital switch from Bob Madonna's business, uh, Excel Corporation. Um, but much more importantly than the technology, I met someone named Patrick Malampi back in uh, 88 or 89. And Pat and I have been partners working together ever since. I think that's uh, got to be 30-some-odd years at this point. And there's a half a dozen very senior engineers working with me in my current business that I also met back at Boston Technology, Bob Penfield, Peter Comerford, et cetera. Um, and so what Boston Technology represented to me more than anything else was a community. And, you know, enterprises are a collection of souls, and a great enterprise is a collection of great souls. You need to meet these people. And the way you meet people is that you get involved in a community. And that's what Boston Tech represented. So in this case, for example, talking about Patrick, because relationships and in, in, in business and, and, and more especially co-founders, I mean, I think it's like over 65% of businesses fail because of co-founder issues. It's something crazy like that. 
yeah, so, I bet, bet yeah. it's higher than that. <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess, I guess, Patrick. I mean, what, what, what would you say made him like your better half in in business? You know, um, you need lots of non-overlapping uh, compatibility. So, you know, your strength is your weakness. So, the things that I'm good at, perhaps my partner is not so strong at. The things that he's good at are things that I'm not strong at. And we have a similar set of ethics and, and, and mores. Um, we have uh, similar goals. Um, we, we believe culture, we, you know, the cultural overlap is close to 100%. It, uh, partnerships are the best and the worst. When they work, they're the best. When they don't work, they will take you out of business. And, um, you know, there's... It, it, we talk about Cisco, they, they, you know, an IP routing company. Well, they didn't invent the IP router. It's really a stone's throw from where I am here off of 128. Proteon invented the IP router, but they failed. And the reason they failed is that their management team was dysfunctional. And so when partnerships are dysfunctional, the enterprise will fail. It's like a giant leak in the boat. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. So priority call management. So you started this in 91. So what, what was essentially the business model? Well, I, you know, I, I knew so little. I, I, I would say my father gave me a battlefield uh, MBA about seven years in because I needed money. I raised money from family and friends. I took about a third to a half of my parents' retirement fund, which was actually nuts. I don't know who was stupider, my parents or myself. <laughs> my father at some point finally said, geez, you have so much of our money, I might as well come work with you. And my dad, who I still work with to this day, became my partner at uh, Priority Call. And we started with Meet Me Paging in convention centers, realized that was a crappy business. It became Meet Me Paging with enterprises. That was sort of not such a great business. And then what happened is that we discovered that our technology could be used for rate-based arbitrage. Back then, it was international callback. So if you were in Boston and you made a call to Germany, maybe it cost you 50 cents a minute. If you were in Germany and made a call to Boston, same switches, same network, same everything. The direction was different. It was opposite. It cost you $1.50. So it was purely a tariffing issue. And so by being able to set up phone calls in the reverse direction based upon what was the cheapest way to set it up, you could have an, a quantifiable ROI that was quite fantastic. And companies like Telegroup were built. Well, we made a lot of the infrastructure to help people set up telephone calls as directional vectors based upon the most effective rates. And then that morphed into things like cell phones were very expensive. And so a lot of people couldn't get them because they didn't have credit. So we built cellular debit systems where people could pay money and get access and you'd meter in real time how much cell network access they had before you would cut them off. And so we started doing things that really made the telephone network work better for people's business models. And, you know, it was, it was, a, it was not a great business. It was a good business. We learned a lot. We built a great team. And, um, you know, in the middle of 90, in June of 99, we sold the business for $162 million which was actually a wonderful outcome. We really only raised about $17 million to get there. And so I thought we were cash, uh, very efficient. And, um, you know, my VCs, I did at the very end have venture capitalists come in. They probably were about 10 million of the 17 million raised. And they really tried hard. They, 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 they really tried hard to uh, get me to take the business public. And I was just convinced that this was not a great business. 
It was not strategic to anyone. And when the, you know, the heady days of the late 90s go away, we were going to lose our market and our customers. And sure enough, I ended up being right, unfortunately, because I hate to see anybody uh, suffer. But we did get out of Dodge in uh, June of 99. And that was a really, really good time. And it taught me something else, which is about decision making which is you make decisions every single day, what clothes to wear, what way to take to work, when to put your seatbelt on, which you should put it on as soon as you get in your car, but you put it on at the end of your driveway. Do you drink iced coffee? Who do you hire? <laughs> but some decisions are much more important than other decisions. Right. And the most important decision was on November 4th of 1980, of 1998, when I decided at breakfast that it was time to sell the business. And I spent six months and I finally sold the business. That one decision was worth more than many others. And so understanding when you run an enterprise, you can't get mired down in taking a long time to make decisions, and you can't spend too much time on the decisions that don't matter. And I learned that. This, this was a really effective lesson uh, that I learned in 98 and 99. Got it. And then after that, you actually went on to build probably what has been one of your, big, one of your biggest, if not the biggest, success from an outcome perspective, which, uh, which is Acme Packet. So, so how did the, um, the idea of Acme Packet uh, come about? You know, I, I, I sold, when I sold Priority Call, I, I, I thought I was never going to work again. Um, and what, I, you learn a lot about yourself. And having a job is truly a blessing. Um, I really enjoy being around people and building community and having a purpose and a mission and a vision. And, you know, I, I did get to spend time with my wife and, and my emerging family at that point. Um, and, and I love them dearly, but uh, I did miss that other facet, the other dimension in my life. And uh, Patrick, a year later, called me up. My, my, he, at that point, he was my CTO. He wasn't my co-founder of Priority Call. And he said, you know, the world's going to change. Everything's going to be IP. And I said, oh, OK, so what does that have to do with us? And he said, well, you don't understand voice is going to have to go over this network. And I said, well, yeah, people can already do that today. In NPR, they had a father and a son using their computers and doing voice over IP halfway around the world. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But really making telephony work is going to, in a safe, secure, scalable way, is going to require things that don't exist today. And I said, oh, okay. And there was an innovation called SIP, Session Initiation Protocol. It's a new protocol back in uh, 2000 that the 3GPP consortium standardized on. These were the, the wireless carriers. And he said to me, it's a routable signaling protocol. The reason the telephone network works is because it has a signaling protocol called SS7. The internet does not have a signaling protocol. And he said, that's what's the missing ingredient for allowing large-scale, highly secure telephony to move on to the IP networks. I didn't quite understand what he was saying. We were at a Dunkin' Donuts in July of, of uh, 2000, but he was really excited. And I said, all right, Pat. And, I, and I, I drew a line right through the table. I said, you get all of the technology and product. I'll take all of the, uh, the marketing sales and, and business side, and we'll be partners. And on August 3rd, 2000, we started, uh, we started Acme Packet. And uh, what we did is uh, I, I, had, I had just bought a house, the first thing I'd ever bought in my life. And uh, I put uh, a whiteboard, I nailed it up on the kitchen wall. And uh, we started inviting people on Route 128 in Boston to come to my, my kitchen and help show me how two people could do a voice over IP call from their respective desks 
in their, in their business, in their enterprise. And nobody could actually make it work. They could sort of connect things to clouds that were lines connected to clouds. And I said, no, 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 I really, let's show me the walk of the packets. I want to see it go. And the fact that only about 85% of this solution made sense, that 15% that was missing, I said, that's our business. And uh, we started the business and it ended up being a great business. It uh, was really, by every measure, it was a great business. So how were you guys making money here? Well, what we discovered is that there was an element that needed to exist at every network edge called, and we called it a session border controller. And people said to me, well, wait a second, you're telling me for your solution to work, every single service provider has to have one of these products at the edges of their network. And we said, yes. And they said, well, that's never going to happen. And we said, no, there's no other, there's really no other way to make it work. And we ended up being right. And we produced uh, purpose-built pieces of hardware with specialized software, and they were called session border controllers. And that became the architecture that the world uses for all voice over IP calls, which is essentially almost all telephony today, that happens across and between networks um, where, you know, people's homes and businesses want to engage in highly secure, high-quality telephony. In fact, I think 30 to 40% of the world's telephone traffic probably traverses our elements at these network edges. We had um, 2,000 of the largest service providers in 110 countries. We had an 82% margin on all of our products. Uh, it was tr truly a great, great business. The problem is we ran out of market. We had 300 million of a $600 million market. And while there were 30 other companies, we had at least 50% of the market and very high margins. But at some point, you, if your market doesn't grow, you sort of become confined. And as a public company, we, I ran the business for 51, 52 quarters, and it was public for 26 of them. And it became clear to me near the end of the 26 public quarters that my customers, the large service providers, weren't able to leverage their, uh, they weren't able to grow. Yeah. Uh, people like Apple and Facebook and Yahoo were growing at their expense. And um, we were able to find someone that wanted to buy us. And it was uh, it was a very good outcome. It worked very well for the acquirer and worked very well for us. And it freed us up to do new things, to tilt at new windmills and have a new purpose. Very cool. And we'll, we'll talk about this transaction in, in just a bit. Uh, I want to ask you, based on, for example, like on your previous business, uh, on the first business that you did, you know, perhaps there was like one lesson that you learned that you told yourself, I am absolutely going to apply this one to Acme. What, what was that lesson? Well, I, I, I learned so many. Um, I, I suppose, and this, this is a lesson that unfortunately is not always a good lesson to learn. Um, I just was never going to give up. I was never, ever going to give up. Um, you know, there, there, was a, there was a point in 1995 where I had to lay off most of the organization. There were 11 of us that remained, and my father, brother, and I were working together, and we just took, we, we took no salary. We um, went to work, my dad and I, 107 days in a row before the sun came up, it would be at work, and we would not leave until after the sun set for 107 days, wow. not paying anything. We had $550,000 in the bank and we were spending $85,000 a month and we did not have a business, but we had taken four and a half million dollars from friends and family. And I was like, I just can't fail. 
And that was very, very hard. Uh, But we didn't give up. And we continued to reinvent ourselves. We continued to work until we could find some sort of value proposition where the business was able to turn itself around. And I can't say that's necessarily the right lesson um, in all instances, but that kind of perseverance, that kind of belief, um, I think is, is, is a cornerstone of any entrepreneurial effort. Absolutely. And, and out of curiosity on, on priority, uh, call you did you did. I mean, the exit was was almost a ten x for for the people that put money in. Uh, oh, so we, we, yeah, it, it it was more for every for the, the VCs. It wasn't quite a ten x. It was close, but for yeah. everyone else, it was much more than that. So then, so then, my question is: I mean, on on Acme, you guys raised some money uh, from people like Menlo Ventures and 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 others. Why why did you raise money? What was I mean? You guys already made you know a lot of money with especially to some of these investors, and you could finance this, what was the reasoning behind bringing outsiders? Well, that question is more is actually more salient to 128 technology because we were much, much, much more successful with Acme Packet than we were with uh, Priority Call. Yeah, maybe we can, uh, we can answer the two of them in one go here. Why, yeah. why bring outsiders? Yeah, you know... Look, I I have a fantasy, and sometimes sometimes fantasies are best left as fantasies, not as realized. You know, every so often someone's a great cook, and their friends say, "Oh my God, you should start a restaurant." <laughs> thing they should do sure. have the fantasy of doing the restaurant. My fantasy is not having any shareholders, right? I mean, it's just, because then I can do things that aren't necessarily connected to value. I am I am highly value driven and value connected. So, for example, um, getting box seats at the Patriots, who I happen to love. Um, and saying that, well, this is how we're going to entertain our clients is actually not 100% accretive, and we don't do that. If I didn't have any shareholders, I could do it, and I wouldn't have to answer to anybody. Yeah. Um, so that's my fantasy. Now, in reality, why do I have uh, shareholders? Well, I think that enterprise creation, particularly enterprise creation where it's a disruptive, innovative technology at a market that's about to turn, velocity really matters. And the ability to attract and put resources to work is dependent upon velocity. And uh, I think unless you're willing to put a huge amount of capital without too much constraint psychologically, because it's your own capital to work, you might be better served by having a coalition of, of investors. It provides balance. It provides context. It provides access to capital. Um, and I do think there is a discipline and a rigor associated around running a business where there are many different investors. There's governance. Uh, there's a whole sort of uh, whole bunch of issues that all of a sudden emerge where you solve them in a way that I think is most appropriate. Yeah. So so taking capital is probably the right thing to do. But you have to think about how much capital, when, in what increments and it, and and in you know, those, those are the, those are the real, those are the real questions to parse, not should I take capital or not? Now, look, if you want to build a small business, um, or you want to build a business slowly, you don't necessarily need to take capital, but if you want to build a great business, if you want to change the world, then you need capital and you need velocity. So for Acme, how much capital did you guys take? So we raised a total of 44 and a half million dollars. Um, and when we went public, we had $31 million in the bank. Uh, now, we had, we had started generating cash. We probably consumed a total of $30 million um, 
you know, businesses need capital. You can't just run out at zero. So 44 and a half was probably the right amount. But the first 2.4 million, the seed investment was done by my father, my uh, business partner, Patrick, and myself, and then a few friends and family. Um, and then we raised another 12 million on top of that. You know, we were very careful and we raised money as we needed it over time. Um, and it was a very, it was a very capital efficient business. Sure. So, so I see that the, um, the transaction. So, so obviously there was an M and A. You know, you guys were acquired by Oracle for two point one billion in two thousand thirteen. My God, I mean, so many zeros. I'm getting dizzy here, Andy. But the, yeah. but basically, I want to know how how big was the business uh, immediately uh, right before the transaction? Yeah, we had about a thousand people. We had four hundred and forty million dollars of cash in the bank. We were a very profitable business. Um, we had a couple thousand customers. All the large service providers in 110 countries were our customers. And we partnered with just about every network equipment vendor, whether it was Lucent, Alcatel, Nokia, Siemens, Ericsson, Huawei. We partnered with just about everybody. Um, we were the dominant player. We had 82% product margins and we had operating margins in the 30s. It was, it was a great business. We just ran out of market. Markets make companies. No more market, no more company. And again, you know, it goes back to the decision. Um, you know, the time where you make the decision that it's time to, to perhaps go after the M and A process. So, how how was the M and A process for you guys? How how was that like? Well, it's really complicated being a public company. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, the, the the last thing you can ever have happen as a public company is have people believe that you're in play, that you're trying to sell yourselves. And, and great transactions aren't because companies sell themselves, it's because companies are bought. So the two things we had to navigate was, number one, avoid anyone believing that we were considering a transaction, and number two, making sure that we weren't for sale, but that someone might be interested in buying us. And, um, you know, again, I had, great, I had great bankers that I worked with. I also had great uh, M&A transaction folks. Uh, I do think that... Uh, Working with folks of quality and integrity really matter. And I approached them probably um, sometime in 2012 just to, just to talk about things um, and to explore, and not much came of it. And then um, later in 2012, uh, we were approached. Um, so I don't know whether or not we fertilized the ground or softened the ground or not, but uh, we were approached and then we started talking about it and you know clearly they were willing to pay for some future value i remember the board meeting my board did not want to sell the business they they loved the business they they, they did it was a great business and uh, but i really had explained to them that you don't sell things when you see things are wrong you sell things when you intuitively understand that even though this is quote the best of times the underlying dynamics aren't there for you to continue to deliver on your vision over time. And that was, you know, it was, it was a, it was an emotional time because uh, for a lot of people, this was really special. And it seems that you're very good at identifying patterns that perhaps are going to help you understand that it could be, or it may be the peak of the business, at least to the point where you're able to take it. Is there like a process or a methodology or something that you do to really get to that decision? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm getting data all the time. Uh, you know, we we it, 
it's funny. If you go back to like Henry David Thoreau's time, observation, being an observer is a noble, very high art form. It's something fundamental to understanding one's place in, in, in the world. And today, being an observer is like a pejorative term. You don't even get a vote when you're an observer on a board. Um, and so I think that we and we keep ourselves so busy and distracted with social media that we don't really observe. And I'm an observer of what's going on in the enterprise. I, I see what the customers are doing, what the competitors, what the partners what our funders, what the employees, I'm looking all the time at what's going on and I'm trying to absorb data and I'm trying to make sense of it all. And, you know, that, that, that's what I do. In some ways, being a CEO, your job is to look for the sharp objects in the room, right? Everybody, everybody wants to invest and they want to grow and they want to get bigger. I want to create more value, but I have to look for where the corners are. Where are the things where we could really hurt ourselves? And, you know, it's the combination of being an observer and constantly trying to understand where, where the openings are and where the, where the corners are. And, and it's, it, it's much more intuitive than it is formulaic. And I, I suppose what I would say is engage in observation. And, I, and it's hard, especially as an entrepreneur, because part of being a leader is to constantly tell the story, to constantly share the vision, to constantly enlist people in the mission of the enterprise. And sometimes you start believing your own words. And sometimes what you're observing are your own words being reflected back to you. And that's not very helpful or insightful. Yeah. And that's very powerful because that's, you know, many founders, you see them, you know, really getting out of reality and not being grounded, you know, as a result of this. So it's, it's very profound uh, what you're, what you're saying there, Andy. So, so then after the transaction, so 2013, um, 2.1 billion, incredible exit. You then, instead of getting your boat and going to the Caribbean, you decide to complicate your life once, once more, and you go on and launch one to eight technology in 2014. So, so what was the incubation process of this idea? Well, you know, it's funny. My dad's 87. He comes to work three days a week and it's sort of one of the high points of, of his week and it keeps him going. And I can see that I'm wired the same way. I, as I mentioned, it is a blessing to have a job. I, I love coming to help and be part of and build and lead a community. Um, and I missed that when we sold the business in uh, 2013. I, sure. I got to spend time with my family who I love dearly. Um, but I was missing that other dimension and, uh, you know, but I had been through this with my partner, Patrick before I, I you know, I, I have a relationship with the investors as the CEO of the public company. He has the relationship with the customers. So when the transaction happened in 2013, my investors were all gone. Oracle already has a CEO. They don't need another God forbid a company with two CEOs. Look what it did to rim. I mean, one is more than enough and probably one too many. Um, and so my job went away and Patrick's job didn't because he had the customers that had committed their, their business to our technology. And he really wanted to spend the year working with them to make sure the transition worked, just like he did a priority call back in 1999. And so I, um, I went off and wandered and did a whole bunch of different things for seven, eight, nine months. But I would come see Patrick every other week, and he thinks that he and I split the bill. But every other week, I'd say, no, Pat, it's my turn to pay. We'd go to Legal Seafood or some other place. And I would just keep buying him lunch and just stay in touch with him. And one day he said to me, 
Networking is all screwed up. It hasn't changed and it needs to. And it's the source of many of the problems with the internet and we can fix it. And this is a very big opportunity. And I heard that and I saw the conviction in his voice. And uh, I said, okay, let's start the business. And uh, on uh, the 14th of July in 2014, 128 Technology was born. And it seems that Patrick is a machine of uh, generating ideas. You know, the same thing happened with Acme. So, so I'm just wondering, like, where does he get the creativity or, the, or those ideas? How does he come across them? So he's an inductive reasoner, not a deductive reasoner. You know, in other words, he, he, um, he, like me, is observing and trying to understand and formulate, even though you can't really connect the dots if you only have the data set to work from that you've, that you've, that you've acquired. Um, and Patrick is also wrong often which he will say that he'll say, you know, I'm wrong more than I'm right. And that's part of the liability of being as creative as he is. And so figuring out what ideas are off the wall and crazy and what ideas the prescient one is very, very difficult. And, and that's where I think our partnership and the larger community that we built at Acme and that we have at 128 is really helpful. Um, and it really, this really is Patrick's idea. And um, he, he really believed that what when, when we were acquired by Oracle, he saw for the first time a large corporation, Acme, we were a medium corporation, being subsumed into a large corporation, Oracle, with 140,000 people. And he saw how crazy enterprise networking was. Like, we're not, a, we're not networking, folks. We, we, we just didn't do networking. And he just couldn't believe how crazy it was, how they were connecting things and rooting things and how mobility and applications and everything were causing problems and, and, and security. And that was when he said, Jesus, something has to be, this, this can be much better. And he started thinking about it and he discovered, you know, he just discovered a, a, an unmet opportunity, you know, an unmet need with a lot of technology and timing. and. Um, you know, you'd, you'd have to ask him. I, very impressive. It's really, really impressive. So then 128 technology, what's the, what's the business model? Well, the, I'm going to be highly revisionist okay. because, you know, for, for five, almost five years, we've been trying to figure it out. But it goes something like this. The network shape is changing. So, so in other words, if you could go up in space and, you know, five or 10 years ago, and you could look at the shape of the network, all the packets flowing across these million public and private networks, it would have a shape to it. And that shape has changed dramatically because things now have moved to the cloud and people are mobile who consume these services and applications. The applications themselves are mobile. And now we have all sorts of security considerations. So there's a lot of these firewalls and and these disintermediations between these flows. And so and the, the shape of this network that's changed is not one network. It's a million networks, million public and private wireline and wireless networks. And the connective tissue of these networks wasn't designed to be flexed the way it's being flexed. And that's why it's not working. And that connective tissue are routers. And Patrick said, geez, you know, it's time. We can actually build routers virtualized in software. So it's no longer a hardware element. It's an application that can run on any general purpose compute environment. And we can change its DNA to make it inherently more flexible, more in tuned with these forces of security and mobility and cloud that are impacting networks. 
and we can make it work a whole lot better. And it turns out that if you want to fix the networks we have, if you want to make the internet work better, you first of all can't throw anything out because nobody's going to throw out what they have. You need to be able to take what you have and add a little bit to it and solve these problems. And the little bit that you add to it is next generation, very session smart or session aware routing software at the edges of all these networks. And all of a sudden, complexity and security and fragility all start to go away and they work much better. And so we want to make the internet and make the interconnection of these million networks work a lot better. And, 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 you know, if you, if your listeners were looking out the window where, where, wherever they're listening to this podcast and they could see the infrastructure that the world relies on, there's about $440 billion of, of infrastructure. It would come in three colors, storage, compute, and network. And storage and compute are totally different than they were 10 years ago. I'm sitting in front of a MacBook Pro here. It doesn't even have a disk drive. I mean, EMC, which was one of the large disk manufacturers in Massachusetts, has been sold. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore because people store things in the cloud. And from a compute point of view, nobody runs one application on one processor, on one operating system. People run 100 different applications virtualized on a single, uh, virtualized on a single processor. It's how data centers even, even could exist. But networking hasn't changed. If you, took a, if you took a router from 25 years ago and dusted it off and plugged it into the network, it would, have, it would be slow and it would have very skinny pipes, but it would work because networking hasn't changed. And we believe that the same change that hit storage and compute is about to hit networking because we invented networking to connect computers so that you could have remote control and that you could share bits of data. But nobody uses the network to share bits of data. We use it to consume services and applications. And networks don't understand services and applications. And when you put session smart routing at the edges of all these networks, the network begin to understand services and applications. And that's what's missing in today's internet. Got it, got it, got it. And I see that for this business you guys have raised about $68 million. Uh, so then, so then what, how, how big is the business today? Well, I mean, we're, we're operating now um, on four different continents and we've got deployments throughout Europe, throughout Africa, in the United States. And um, we have deployments in China and in Japan and soon in Korea. Um, I mean, networks everywhere. Now the four largest markets in the world would be the US, China, Japan, and Germany. And Germany, Japan, and the United States are very big foci uh, for a 128. And um, we are deploying thousands and thousands of sites every single quarter. It's, it's, it's very exciting. Really, really cool. Really cool. So, so I guess one question that I, that I always ask, and, and maybe before I ask you this question, you know, now, you know, it seems to me like I was getting your image as an entrepreneur. And he gave me the same, you know, image of, let's say, like a celebrity going on the streets and, and having the paparazzis with the, with, the, with the cameras. You know, it's the same as you going on the street and having investors around you to, to invest on, on this. I mean, given the track record that you have. So I guess when you are picking an investor, I mean, in this case, you've, you've picked a couple of ventures. Uh, what are the top three traits, the absolute must for you to be able to let one in in your cap table? Well, I think first and foremost, they have to be a good person. 
um, and everything that is associated with that. I mean, these people are partners. I mean, they have to be nice. I, I, I really don't want to work with mean, nasty people. Uh, they have to be honorable. They have to have high integrity. They have to have a common vision or context for how we're going to create value. Um, they have to be people that I believe I can collaborate with because I really don't create anything individually. I, I don't write software. I don't come up with the marketing message. I don't um, dial for leads to go see a salesperson. I, I, I sit there and I collaborate. And if I can't collaborate with these people or I don't want to collaborate or I don't enjoy it, then I don't want to work with them. So I, I think those would be the, the key traits. Now, I mean, of course, if, if you want to get more tactical about it, um, I don't want people to engage in unnatural acts to work with me. So the size of their fund, the stage they invest, um, the period of time they're willing to be illiquid, um, the markets that they, you know, you know, focus on, those all have to be consonant with what I'm trying to do, or it's not going to create a sustainable construct over time. Got it. Got it. So, so let me ask you this, Andy, a question that, that I always ask founders I, that, that are on the show. If you had to, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and and talk to yourself, be, you know, at that point where you were giving your notice with Boston Technology to establish your first company, what would be one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self, and why? You know, it's funny. I, you know, the the vector I live in is always forward, never never backwards. Um, so I I really haven't thought about that. I, I think that. Um, you know, I could be very tactical and say, don't, don't. And that's not really the spirit of your question, which is don't go into the convention center <laughs> business, which is crappy business. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I, I feel pretty much kind of satisfied with the way I did it. You know, the failures I had, I wouldn't want to have avoided because it informed me an awful lot about what I needed to do the next time to be successful. And it created a, a, a character in me. So. I don't think I'd do much differently. I love it. I love it. I think failures, I, look, I, failures, I, I agree. You know, failures, you know, are, are, are good. You know, they are there and the universe is putting them for us so that we can learn. And, uh, and I think that, look, it's uh, it's just, it just made you who you are today, you know, and how you view things. So, so I can, I can get that. So Andy, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Info at 128technology.com. Fantastic. Well, Andy, it has been such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. And thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Alejandro, thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to share our story. I genuinely appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.